Stephen Thiel has some experience when it comes to AI ethics. This is not his first rodeo. His ability to explain things, his breadth of knowledge is fascinating. I had a wonderful time talking to him and I asked him to introduce himself, give us a quick intro blurb and he just was off to the races. So you'll hear that at the beginning that it was straight to the point no messing around. We only got an hour. We're going to talk about the most important stuff. So if you're new here and you're wondering what exactly this whole podcast video cast is about, we are bringing on some of the best and the brightest minds when it comes to AI ethics and AI governance. And we're talking to them about the biggest issues that they see and how we can create best practices as we move forward. You'll see that in this conversation, Stephen has thought long and hard about these best practices. And he actually joined us in our Slack community, which I encourage everyone to jump into if you have not already. It is a wonderful and open community where we are talking about everything that has to do with AI ethics and related technologies. You can find the links below. The last thing I will mention is that we have an incredible sponsor. Without them, we would not be here today. So I have to say thank you to Ethics Grade. They are an AI benchmarking firm. Sorry, AI ethics benchmarking firm. Don't forget that ethics part. That's the important one. Ethics Grade, if you want to know more about them, you can check the link below. And now let's just jump into it with Steven. You'll, you'll hear he's off to the races. What does he have to say? Here we go. Are you a robot? I'm Steven Thiel. I lead responsible innovation at Accenture. And this is something that uh, we started as a research initiative um, really in, in, as part of the research for the 2014 technology vision. And what we uncovered during that process, uh, a, a foresight process where we go from kind of what I call topics, which is you know 30 to 40 kind of point source things, might be mobile, IoT, cloud, those types of things, which we then assemble into themes. Um, and so we take three or four of those topics, assemble them into themes, and then we have we tell stories about those. So the themes are both logical and random. So we'll pick things out of a box and put them together, and then we tell stories. And sometimes those stories are kind of silly, and sometimes those stories are, are very realistic, and sometimes those stories, um, you know, get a little scary. And so the stories are both kind of utopian or realistic and then dystopian. You know, if things go wrong, what does this look like? And that year, about 80% of those stories took the form of, holy geez, we're going to be able to do some really interesting things with technology. And just because we can really doesn't mean we should. And what do we do about that? And more importantly, how do we advise clients around that? Because, you know, really our mandate as a lab is to look at things that our clients will care about in the next one to two years. Uh, my particular team is looking at foresight that's really three to five years out, and sometimes we extend that a little bit to kind of have a peek around the corner. And so all of these stories were really, you know, kind of three to five years out. And that was the time horizon where we felt, you know, if we could do something in the next couple of years, we could actually affect this when it becomes important. 
Mm-hmm. And I ended up building a team of about 20 external luminaries. You know, the first person uh, was a, a cyborg anthropologist, um, oh, wow. which is a really cool thing. Um, and then we ended up adding like German privacy lawyers. Um, we had a, a woman who works on war crimes data for the UN. She's one of, you know, 10 people in the world with access to this data. Because if it got out, it means genocide um, and, wow. and, you know, very deep harms. And so it was really interesting as we look at, you know, kind of how can this go wrong and what ends up happening. And we really wanted to be able to affect some kind of advice and change in that space. And we ended up publishing a handful of papers in 2016. They were largely picked up by, I'd say, middle management layers. So managers, directors of data science, software engineering Mm -hmm. teams. And that's really not my core audience that I'm after, right? I, I want to talk to C-suite and direct reports and influence their thinking. And so my leadership, you know, after a few years of this was starting to say, okay, you know, maybe we should look somewhere else. It doesn't seem like there's there's a lot of interest there. And then Cambridge Analytica happened. And all of a sudden I started having incomings initially from general counsels and then boards of directors. And I think they told senior executives to do something about it. And so, you know, then they started calling. And since that time, I've had the the pleasure of working with dozens of companies across nine different industries, um, oh. and it's just been you know a fascinating and fun journey. Can you tell us a, a few stories oh, that wow. you created? Yeah, um, you know the, the the trouble with the stories is that nobody will allow us to really talk about it. So I can talk about some things in general that have been really yeah. interesting. I think you know one of the the first things that really had me scratching my head. Um, I heard that one of the, the world's largest advertisers was interested. Um, and, and I'm just trying to think of, you know, how does that work really? And it turned out, you know, their question was, should we even be advertising on social networks during global election cycles um, due to brand safety concerns, right? We don't want our valuable brands to be showing up next to mis and disinformation because that erodes trust in what we try to do. And so, we, you know, what, what do we do about that? I think that was one of the more interesting ones. Another one that, that was kind of um, interesting as well was a smart cities player. Right. And so their, their interest was essentially, you know, look, we have a, a chief of police in a city that is saying, you know, we're in court. We have, uh, 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 we can see from from camera footage from you know the the smart cities company puts um, different types of sensors and boxes on light poles, and so those might be um, video surveillance, right? Um, and so they have footage of a car pulling up, a man getting out, and a couple minutes later, the man getting in with a little girl, and the guy says, you know, I've I, had a relationship with this girl her whole life, you know, nothing to see here, move along. Mom says girl was extracted through a ground floor window, um, and this is a kidnapping. Um, You know, and chief of police says, hey, if I had UAVs flying overhead, I'd have this footage, you know, hey, company, why don't you give this footage to me? Um, And the company says, look, you know, we put our stuff on light posts, you know, we, we disable any pixels over private property by default. Um, you know, we have no interest in spying in bedrooms and that kind of thing, right? The right response. And the chief of police says, well, you know, figure it out. I understand you don't have it for this one, but we're going to have this situation or something similar again, and you need to figure it out that time. Um, wow. And the company says, well, what do I 
do about that, right? Yeah. And in what another, do they do about that? <laughs> in another city, um, you know, the, the the mayor that we have shot spotter microphones in these you know boxes as well, and the mayor wants to use that audio um, to really get a word cloud of what the residents are is on their minds, oh, right? No. What are they thinking about day to day? So when I come into the office in the morning, I want a word cloud sitting at my desk. How that could that go horrible. wrong? Right? Yeah. <laughs> No, and way. so you know the answer to so so then the question really becomes you know okay well what happens when you know say a Riyadh Saudi Arabia um, you know wants this system and they want the five things that features that all these cities have and then they start using the system to persecute dissidents yeah. right now the the yeah. residents in the cities you know elsewhere find out like hey wait a minute we have the same system installed that Riyadh is using to persecute dissidents get that out of my city. Right. And there's no mayor on the planet that's not going to respect that because they want to get reelected. And so, you know, we have existential risk on our hands. And so how do we deal with that? Right. And so this is really interesting, this story, because the answer to it is really you go to market with your values. Right. Mm -hmm. This is this is not where I expected this work to go. when we started looking at it in 2013, 2014. And it's really something that has come full circle. You know, back then, if you had told me, oh, Stephen, you're going to be working on culture change, I would have said, you got the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> but, but that's where really, you know, kind of the highest instantiation of this work goes is toward culture change. So the answer for this company is basically go to market with your values. You tell the mayors, you know, look, this is what you're buying. This is where, you know, we will not compromise on these things. Um, you will not be able to get footage of, of private property ever. Um, and we're giving you this guarantee just as we're giving every other municipality that we work with this guarantee. And we will not erode these values. And, and you can be assured that these valuable tools that you're using to manage your city will not go away because we're doing this correctly. And so do you feel like in that situation that you spoke about where a girl was potentially abducted, would that be a good use case to actually have the spying and break that that hardline stance? I mean, it seems like you would want to know that, but then it's just a slippery slippery slope from there, right? That's exactly so, right. So is it all or nothing or is is there some leeway? I mean, it sounds to me like it's all or nothing. In certain situations, it's more binary, I think. But overall, you know, we see a number of kind of tenants coming through. And one of those is, is increasing agency for those that are involved, right? That those, for those who are subjected to the AIs. Um, in some situations, you know, certainly with surveillance situations, that's not necessarily an option. Um, and then it comes down really to governance, right? How are, we, how are we governing this? How are we saying what's okay and what's not okay? Um, and under what context? How are we, how are we reviewing that, right? So um, if we look at it kind of more broadly, and we say, okay, well, you, you heard me mention values before, and how you go to market with your values. So mm-hmm. really, you know, th- those values are what that they indicate what stakeholders care about, what they want to protect, what they want to promote, right? And then we look at at principles. Um, and, and those are really the norms or rules that describe how to implement the values. They, they describe in general what ought or is required, and this can be ethically, legally, um, according to your own, you, you know, your organization's own uh, value structure. And, and what do you want to protect and promote, um, or, or how do you want to use those principles to protect and promote those basic values? Um, 
And then it's really the job of governance to assess whether those norms are satisfied in a particular case, like, you know, um, maybe with respect to a new decision-making procedure, a new technology, a, a new organizational policy. It could be, you know, any number of things. Um, and then ethics is actually that work that's performed to satisfy the values in accordance with the principles and in support of governance. And I think, you know, as those are themes that we see kind of, you know, riddled throughout most of the engagements that we look at. So speaking of which, like I, I read a lot of your work on creating a committee and an ethics committee in inside of companies. And like you said, it seems like Cambridge Analytica <laughs> was great for business and it ended up making th making people aware of the need for this. Right. And so I just love to dive into that a little bit. Like what needs to be in place to create this committee and does it need to be internal, external, a little bit of both? How do you see that? And cause I know you have some, some best practices for that. Yeah. And it, it, you know, the thing is, is that one size does not fit all right. Um, you know, one of the, the, common things that I hear is, you know, we don't want bloated bureaucratic governance, right? We want essential governance. We want just the, the minimum that we need to not create a lot of friction, but then still have this, this control over what gets shipped. Um, and, and I think that's really the key is in all of this work, how do we fit it into what already exists? I think there's a good example here. So one of the, the papers we published in 2016 was around like, what are the, the questions to ask along the, the data supply chain, right? Or the product development life cycle. And so we looked at um, both ITIL service delivery model and uh, Project Management Institute's best practices. And we, we lined up kind of the, the life cycle management process. We said, okay, where are pre and post-mortems? Where can we inject these questions into the process, right? And what we found is that that really doesn't get the job done. Because what ends up happening, unless you have an applied ethicist in the room leading the conversation, those conversations get very circular, and it doesn't really yield a result. And so, you know, we, we came up with this other thing with, with a number of other collaborators as well that we call ethical spectrums. And ethical spectrums looks at kind of, we want to, again, it, it's, it's looking at this idea of how do you provide agency for those that are, that are directly involved. And so the, the spectrum might look like something, um, on one end, you might say uh, uh, it's, what is a business status quo? And at the other end, it's really, you know, what is an ethically higher bar? And what you, you know, example of this is model for an aggregate population over an individual, right? Currently, the status quo is I want to market to the party of one. I want to know a lot about you and I want to know enough so that I can, um, so that I can give you a message that will resonate with you. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you don't have a million unique, you know, users or individuals who you're, you're servicing. You have a million people who might fit into a dozen different personas or a couple mm -hmm. dozen different personas, right? And this is a lot easier problem to solve for, you know, like marketing, for instance. It's a lot easier to operationalize. And it's actually an engineering harder problem which engineers gravitate toward, right? They love hard problems. And so you allow, you give them the agency to make that decision 
based upon a, a generalized framework that says, oh, here's maybe 10 things that you should be, you know, 10 spectrums you should be looking at. Um, another thing that uh, uh, Kathy Baxter at Salesforce kind of started doing was, was putting in, uh, you know, in, in agile processes, your definition of ready and definition of done and kind of, you know, your definition of ready, you're saying, oh, well, how might this be weaponized? Right. Um, you know, have some foresight as to, you know, how could things go wrong? And then on the definition of done, we want to reflect on that. You know, what was done to address these things that you identified earlier? And then what did you discover along the way? So if we come back and make a version 2.0, what are the things that we should be paying attention to maybe in that next version? Right. And so these are all kinds of like controls that fit into processes that happen already and, and can be adopted and, and, and whatnot. And so why do you think you mentioned Salesforce and I read how you spoke about Salesforce in a very um, very good light, we could say. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that some companies are able to execute like Salesforce and they're able to bring ethics into their DNA? I actually just this week was speaking to Anne and she works at IBM. And it's another one of those companies where it feels like ethics is is ingrained in them. And then other companies, it's just the wild, wild west. And there's no thought of ethics. Or if they do think about ethics, it's as an afterthought when shit hits the fan. It's interesting. Um, you know, I think that there are leaders who get it. And there are leaders who don't get it. And, and maybe a third class of those who don't get it and never will. Um, you know, have no desire That's to get inspiring. it. Um, <laughs> hopefully those are less and less. Um, but I, I think that Salesforce is certainly one of those organizations that gets it, right? They, they were the first to, to have a C-level role um, to uh, address these things. Um, and there's, there's a lot of opportunity for those who get it to, to really embed it into their operations and into what they do. And I think that, that those who do get it also understand that this is something that builds trust. And in a world that is increasingly focused on, you know, what can we prove? You know, we see a lot of the younger generation using YouTube as a primary search engine because, you know, when you, when you ask them why they say, well, if I see it, I know it's yeah. real, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, this, this, kind of fake news, alternative facts environment that we're in, um, we have a really difficult time, you know, assessing what's real. And I think that's a, that's a primary driver as well. Yeah. And speaking of which, I'm just going to bounce around here a little yeah. bit. I watched your panel on deep fakes and oh. <laughs> I thought that that is something really interesting too, because as you're talking about, us, our generation using YouTube so much and uh, more and more the younger generations, they want to see it so they know it's real. I mean, deepfakes is going to totally destroy that whole rationale or it already has potentially, right? So when you look at deepfakes, do you feel there needs to be more regulation? I thought the panel was, it was really well said when um, a few talked about how, how to try and curtail it so it's maybe it's not like uh it doesn't explode in our face but it seems like it's here to stay so how do you foresee this as you look ahead in the future yeah it's definitely a challenge and it's one of many challenges uh you know i i think that ultimately where i would like to see it go to is 
kind of like a trusted data exchange, but this would be really a, a trusted media um, exchange, right? Where you have a, a platform where anybody can build a tool and, and post it to that platform. And that tool would look at, you know, how do I authenticate um, the, the validity of this video or this audio, this picture, right? Media um, clip. Um, and maybe as a, I, I would like to see a future where when things are posted to social channels, even the news, that they first go to this system and, and you end up with a watermark that says the confidence that this video is original and unaltered is X. Mm-hmm. Um, where we see technology, you know, there's a company called TruePick that builds hardware devices for OEMs to integrate into their, um, you know, digital devices, the capture devices, whether it's an audio recorder, a, a, a SLR camera, um, you know, you name it. And can I validate the, the at capture that this is original and unaltered and how do I carry that metadata through, right? Adobe yeah. has done um, something very similar where they allow creators to amend that metadata to you know, transformations that they do within their software. And so it, it, it gives us another tool, another signal that this is you know, a legitimate piece of media that we can trust. And I think ultimately that's what it comes to. And companies are realizing that in this environment where trust is difficult, it becomes a differentiator and it builds gravity toward brands. And those brands that, that, that garner trust are those that will be able to experience outside growth going forward. You know, this is why Apple has had an ad, ad campaign the last you know, year and a half, two years that focuses on privacy. Yeah. You, you wouldn't have seen that a number of years ago, but it, it engenders trust. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the light posts that are looking at their their surroundings, their surveillance on everything. It's a great way for them to market if they talk about how this is our hard line. We're not going to break this line. And so you can trust us on this one. Even if the the sheriff comes knocking, we're not breaking that line. And so that's a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, I was actually surprised in the panel at one point um, I can't remember if it was you sorry or if it was one of the members on the panel that said that the question was like I would like to see deep fakes being used for good and I was in a way I was a little bit shocked by that because I thought how can we use deep fakes for good besides just like random entertainment because we get to see Obama rapping or something but what can we do for good around deep fakes? You, you know, th- there's actually quite a bit. And I think this is it, it, movies, right? I mean, yes, entertainment. But this is one of the things where we're seeing more movement in the media industry toward um, digital creation, particularly during pandemic. Um, And this is one of the reasons why the academic researchers who um, have been working on this space have published the work because it is being used by that industry. um, And, you know, there are are reasons to do it. We also have kind of inclusion and diversity reasons to do it that that are somewhat compelling. I can't talk about those yet. Um, You know, but but there are a a number of things. I think, you know, voice is something that is certainly 
uh, compelling as well, right? So we can look at, you know, real time, uh, you can think of whistleblowers and you've seen them on, you know, news programs where their voices changed, where they're in the darkness, right? And yeah. that's not really a deep fake, I, I, you know, that, that's kind of a category of, of so-called cheap fakes. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it kind of gives you this notion of, yeah, there are reasons why we would want to use this technology, um, and, and it's not just for nefarious purposes. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that was brought up by one of the panelists was how deep fakes, just taking a step back and not looking at deep fakes themselves, but looking at the harm that they can cause to society is a bit, uh, it just, it threatens our trust. And it goes back to that idea of trust again, you know, like if we can't trust what we're seeing with our eyes, what can we trust? And so then you are able to have situations where people can say, oh, but that's fake news. That we can't trust that. That's that's not that's not true. And so when there are things that are true, and it reminds me of a, a thread I read on Twitter that was about a nurse in one of the Carolinas. I can't remember if it's South or North. And she was talking about how her day-to-day is horrific because she gets screamed at by people coming in who have the coronavirus and they're telling her that the coronavirus does not exist and they do not have it and they're there screaming at her. They're they're mad when she is trying to help her or she's trying to help them and then they're screaming until they get put into the ICU and then they get put into the ICU and they get put whatever gets stuck down their throat and they stop screaming and she wrote about this on a Twitter thread and it was like, that happens because of situations where we lose trust in what we're seeing, what we can believe in. And so I think that's a, it's a huge point and a little bit of a tangent. Sorry, I just went off on that. But <laughs> anyway, I, I wanted to talk a bit jumping, um, jumping or switching gears a little bit. I think that what you look for in the future what right now are you seeing that you think in a few years is going to be here and in five years is going to be commonplace? What can you predict for us in your magic ball? <laughs> well, I certainly see a lot of growth here, right? Um, I, there's so much that excites me about the future of this space. I mean, there's increasing demand from all corners of business, government, civil society, academia, you know, you name it. Um, there, there's interest in this space. And I think that is, is really exciting. Um, I've had quite a few clients who come to us saying, look, we've got to do something. I don't know much about this space, but I can tell you, you know, 80, 90% of the people we've hired in the last two, three, four years are demanding that we do something. And so, you know, one thing is, is that, you know, millennials, Gen Z, you have power, you have a voice, use it, build a choir, don't accept the status quo, and you can create change. And I think that is really encouraging to me that where that demand is coming from and the responsiveness of, of, of quality leadership or organizations with quality leadership is really encouraging. Um, and I think, you know, what does success look like in the future um, you know, I have this vision that, that at some point there's going to be an interview of, of someone, you know, maybe um, someone who starts work in a couple years 
And in, in, you know, five or 10 years after that, they're being interviewed and it's like, you know, you've done this amazing stuff with ethics and, you know, why, what makes you do it that way? And the confused look that comes back and, and the response is, I don't know. It's always the way we've done it. You know, and I think to me, that is what, that, that's what success looks like. And that, that is really exciting to me. So that's like laying the foundation so that there is no other choice. That's right. This and is just so, the way we do it. Yeah, exactly. So that there's not even a thought or an afterthought of doing it a different way. So how how can you lay that foundation? I know you have the a code of data ethics uh, that you put out. What are some other things that we can do to try and make that more of a reality? So we had put out I, I, a slight correction. We had put out like kind of a universal principles for data ethics, which are the oh. idea of those is that they would be adopted or used in the creation of codes that might be more context uh, specific. Um, but, but you know, there's so much that we're doing to lay the groundwork, right? So, um, wow, where do we start? So uh, a number of years ago, in, in 2018, when I first started kind of going on the road show with, with um, talking with clients, what we heard was kind of a consistent um, um, theme, which was, you know, I've been beating the drum at my organization for, you know, X number of months or years. I finally have been uh, anointed with the power to do something about it. It's an additional hat that I wear to my day job. And, you know, I just don't even know where to start. And I have very limited time. I have very limited resources. What do I do? Um, after hearing this a, a handful of times in, in, you know, probably a handful plus one meetings, um, we decided, you know, let's set up something. Let's set up some kind of a, a, a salon where we can have practitioners in this space uh, learn from each other and stand on each other's shoulders. And so that was the the start in December. No, I'm sorry, October of 18. We had the first meeting of um, the Data Ethics Salon series, and it, you know, I was kind of concerned. I'm like, how are we going to find that many people, right? Um, so I held it the same day. I, I had I, when I was leading technology vision, I had started an external advisory board there. And I said, okay, I'm going to hold it the afternoon after my advisory board meeting because I know I can get some of those folks to stay after because they're interested in this. Um, and, and that'll at least, you know, put some butts in seats. And then, you know, we'll get some other people to fill in some of the gaps. And, you know, we had about 20 people um, at that meeting and it was such a wonderful discussion. It went ra- way long. We got drinks afterwards. You know, you could do that back then. Um, and... <laughs> It was, it was a lot of fun. And almost everybody in that meeting said, hey, I know so-and-so and so-and-so at these other organizations, and they would love to participate in something like this. They're, they're you know, in the similar situation. And so I would say <laughs> it turned into this thing that was basically a side project, and, and it, was way, it got too, way too wieldy. So we talked with some nonprofits. We were actually going to spin it out um, as an independent nonprofit, um, but it turned out for a number of reasons that that wasn't going to work out. So we talked to some nonprofits about making it a, a you know project of, and it just so happened that the Atlantic Council was spinning up a geotech center, which is kind of their first foray into um, global tech policy um, um, advisory and, and insight. Um, and you might know, you know, the Atlantic Council are the good people who brought us NATO. And so they, they have a, you know, long history, a long, rich history of, of, uh, you know, global collaboration and, and excuse me, and whatnot. Um, and so we ended up uh, landing there. 
Uh, when we handed it over uh, earlier this year, at the beginning of this year, there were nearly 200 members. So we had grown, you know, 10x in, in a year and, and change. Um, and, you know, now there's there's way more than that. And, you know, they've, they've leveraged their networks to add folks. And the idea there is that, you know, we really want to build a set of best practices. And so this is why we needed to spin it out, right? At Accenture, we're, we're a you know, global consulting firm with a half a million people. If we want to publish something that is called a best practice, we need to train our global workforce in that before we okay. do it. Otherwise, we're liable for not doing it. Um, and so that you know, kind of spurred the the desire to spin it out. And so that is still the desire. I will say the pandemic threw a bit of a wrench in there. We had we we had plans and strategies to to uh, have these convenings at global conferences. Uh, the first one was going to be South by Southwest. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and so, you know, we've pivoted and, and I think we're still struggling on how do we get back to this, this you know, vision of, of establishing best practices, because what we want to do is bring all of these practitioners together and we have a number of kind of uh, priority items, per, you know, say, you know, a good example is, you know, what training programs work well for you? Are you willing to contribute those, you know, in a, in a, uh, a, a brand uh, agnostic way, right? So submit what you're doing. This organization will collect all of this information, will synthesize it, and will publish something stripping any provenance and and basically, uh, you know, publishing it under the brand of the data salon and, and you know, calling it a best practice. Because where we want to get to is this notion that there's insurable risk. And if courts can see that there is best practices established for an industry, then we can get to insurable risk. And, and this is basically just, you know, learning from cybersecurity and the path that they took. But it took them about 20 years to do it. And we're hoping to do it in a lot less. Yeah. Um, so wow. that's one item. Another item is, you know, I'm working with a number of universities on kind of curriculum. And so what does that look like um, for, you know, what kind of skills do we need this workforce to have, you know, I, some of the philosophers I work with, they joke that, you know, oh my gosh, this is full employment for philosophers, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Job with, security. Yeah, exactly. And so that, you know, that's really interesting too. And I think, you know, one of the other things is, is through the different networks that we're in, we really encourage, um, I, I took on two uh, interns last year, right? Um, or this past summer. And so I, I really encourage remote, that was, uh those poor interns. Um, and so, you know, everyone who's in this space, who has the ability to do that, you know, please, you know, start mentoring those that are younger. I, I also talk with, um, you know, folks on a weekly basis who reach out and, and, you know, basically, you know, they're really interested in the space. They've, they've got a portfolio of work, you know, but they're, they, they want to know how to get into it. Um, there's a job board that I saw the other day, um, that, that has, you know, a, a good list of these jobs. I would say most of them are, are in academia, which is encouraging because we see that as a signal of, you know, this is where things start. And, and as those, um, uh, academic jobs get filled and get programmed, um, you know, they're teaching others then to go out into the world and, and, and bring this stuff to them. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll try and link to that job board in the description so that people can find it in case they're interested. Awesome. Um, I actually found it from uh, the the Slack group set up for um, Are You a Robot? So There you go. That's awesome. And we should so, uh, plug that as well because that's a very exactly. good community too. 
<laughs> yeah, don't worry. I usually plug it at the beginning and at the end of every episode. And in the middle, we'll do it. We'll now do we get the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like those middle middle commercials that you normally get in the podcast. It's like, yeah, get into that Slack community. There's a lot of good resources being shared there. You mean like so, a little box to display? You know, it's a product. Yeah, <laughs> product placement or this <laughs> this uh, podcast contains ads. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, anyway, this this is a really interesting points that you're making. I think that one of them had super interesting and it touches on what a lot of the guests on here have been saying is that it's like, we don't expect machine learning engineers to have ethics degrees, right? But we expect them to at least know a bit. And so that when things come, like when push comes to shove, they have the moral compass and it's not like uh who was it that said this just the other day to me on this episode somebody will tell me in the comments uh on the other podcast it was like you look at this um ethics not as a place that you're going to reach but as a compass and it's telling you which way is the way the direction that you want to go in and so I, I thought that was brilliant because it's like, oh, we're not going to just magically appear at some place where we go, okay, we're good on ethics. It's always going to be this conversation and we're going to be driving it in one direction or another. And so that's an awesome, awesome points you're making there. I'm wondering, as you go in and you, you're talking to these people because you went from getting 20 people in the room to over 200 and then you handed it off and... When you're going into these like Fortune 500 companies, are you having to make a compromise in the way that you're talking to them? Are you having to try and keep the interest of executives or are they coming in there already like ready to eat up everything that you're saying? It depends. Um, I, th I think the, the, you know, so first off, when we go in and talk with businesses, we don't talk about this as you need ethics. We talk about this as, you know, as a consequence of digital transformation or of using, you know, data to make decisions or using data in products or services, et cetera. Um, we talk about it as a function of, of risk. And so, you know, what kind of risks are you exposed to now that you're making decisions in this way, now that you've deployed AIs in this way, et cetera? Um, and that's a much different conversation than, you know, you should do this because it's the right thing to do. I don't, I don't think any business leader is going to be, you know, fully convinced on that argument alone. Um, they, they are attracted to it because they know it is the right thing to do. They are attracted to it because they believe in some way this is going to improve the relationship they have with their stakeholders. And those might be partners. They might be customers. You know, I'm, I'm working with uh, WEF right now on, on a, a like B2B uh, data sharing um, um, initiative. And it's, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders in this chain and they all have different cares. And I think that the, the thing that one of the nice things that a, an organization like Accenture brings is kind of this exposure, this wide exposure. And so, 
the ability to find kind of win-win-win situations um, are, is really abundant. And it's just a matter of, of really kind of finding those that are, are doing it for the right reasons, are interested for the right reasons. You know, the, I, I mentioned the first phone call I got after the Cambridge Analytica scandal was from a general counsel. And I think, you know, the comments that he made, and this was from a, a, a large Asian conglomerate, is basically, you know, look, we're about to undergo these digital transformations for a number of our businesses so that they can compete. Mm. I realize that there are things in this transformation that can scale outside of our control. And I want to be sensitive to, the, to you know, ethics as we do that. So what do we do? And I think that is a, a theme that, you know, is fairly consistent. And I think another part of that, the, the under, you know, between the lines part of that is a lot of, you know, I would say 95% of those who reach out, they don't know what they don't know. They just know that this is something that they should pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And that's good to hear too. I mean, how you frame it as risk is also quite interesting because that will get people moving, I imagine. That gets some some energy behind it as opposed to, well, this is morally correct. And it's also something boards care about because they're mandated to manage that risk. Mm. And so yeah. if, it, you know, one of the things where we've seen, you know, really these programs can have success is where the C-suite and board are on board. Yeah, yeah. And they're supportive in, in driving that. And you mentioned before about some, what, what did you call it? Insurance risk? Insurable risk, yes. Insurable so, risk. You know, Can one, you break once, that down a bit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a good, uh, one of my collaborators, uh, Scott David at University of Washington, he's a, a former lawyer who, who wrote a lot of the first privacy policies. Mm -hmm. And this was really a, a trajectory that, that he turned me on to, which was, you know, look, there, there's there's a set of um, uh, there, there's a pathway that we go through um, when we look at um, how do we get to um, insurable risk. And so what we look at is really this notion of, you know, who is is um, responsible for it. Um, you know, and how do they how do they interact with others? So the chain that this goes through that that you know he he can much more eloquently um, describe and get into is is really this notion that you know um, com, um, that we first have to establish um, a, a business's duty to handle data ethically. Um, then a governance body must be able to clearly demonstrate a breach of that duty. And if the breach directly causes quantifiable damages, a basis for liability can be asserted. An insurance company then underwrite that, that liability risk. And so once we can get to that, we don't need laws because we have, um, you know, basically <laughs> courts will accept um, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, customs as a source of law. So they will accept customs in an industry. That's, that's a book I've read, by the way, that if you're ever tired, you should consider reading that as well. Um, <laughs> maybe for lawyers, it's more exciting. Um, 
But but really this notion that customs of an industry or of a community, right? And if you really look at, at, at what is the provenance of law, it is really, you know, what are the practices that communities undertake? And so if we can show that that the business community goes through this practice, then then we can establish that that chain of duty, breach, causation, damages, liability, and, and insurance. And and we don't need laws on the books for it because courts will uphold that that um uh, practice. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's a way to bypass. It's like a loophole to not have to go through the <laughs> slow process of regulation. I like to think of it as as more of a, a backdoor. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's you know hippies use the backdoor, right? Like let, <laughs> let's not let's not deal with all this 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 friction. Let's let's just go to the backdoor. Yeah. Well, and that is something that is absolutely incredible to dive into because we've talked about it here on on the podcast quite a few times, especially with uh, Heather when she was on. And she spoke about how this idea of, okay, innovation is happening at such a pace and it's so difficult to have regulation keep up with it, right? But what the, the main argument that you hear from those who are innovating is, uh, or the main argument that you hear against regulation is that it will stifle innovation, right? And she, her argument was, well, what if we slow down just a little bit? Is it going to mean the end of the world? What if we actually do stifle innovation? What is that going to mean for society at large? What is it going to mean? Maybe it's better for us to slow things down a little bit. And I'm wondering your thoughts on that, first of all, and then that, yeah, let's start there before I confuse you with another question. Yeah, regulation is a tough one. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to publish a paper through the Atlantic Council next year that, that talks about some, some smart public policy initiatives. Um, but the, I think that, that one of the risks that we have is, is broad policy around um, this stuff. Yeah. I, I do believe that, you know, leaders don't follow, follow compliance frameworks, they set them. And so we do have an opportunity as an industry to show the path forward. I do also believe that engineers excel with boundary conditions. Right. If you if you look at there, there's a good case study of uh, NASA putting a satellite into orbit and they took this market based approach where they said, look, you know, here's all of our ecosystem of vendors. At the end of the day, this satellite can only weigh this much and the cost has to be below this and we need it by this point in time. So you three all of you vendors have these three, you know, basically chips that you can trade and, you know. I don't care what you guys do. You're going to get, you know, what your contract says you're going to get. And then, you know, you can trade amongst yourself for the rest. So if you need more space and you're willing to sacrifice, you know, you can make it out of like a, 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 a you know, carbon um, uh, nanotubes or something that's ridiculously light, you can sell some of your weight that you're given to somebody else, uh-huh. right? And maybe they can exchange you some space for that, right? And this project came in under budget, under time, and a lighter spacecraft, right? So (laughs) these forces can work, but it's about putting market incentives in the right place. So I think one of the kind of smart public policy, you know, changes that we could make is to say, look, if, if you're an organization that is willing to 
identify and then um, report on these risks that you are taking, that you are undergoing these digital risks, we're willing to give you, you know, the SEC is willing to give you a ceiling on your liability hmm. um, for disclosure. Because that's the only way that we're all going to learn. And we might see that, you know, an organization in life sciences, for instance, identifies a different set of risks than an organization in platforms or, you know, yeah. name your other industry. So I, I think that that is really an opportunity for us to, to kind of move forward. I don't look at it as, you know, smart policy incentivizes innovation. It doesn't stifle it. But you know, I think there are going to be some growing pains till we get there. Um, a, a good example of this might be, you know, surveillance policy, right? I live in San Francisco. Um, we were the first city to pa pass the, the anti-face surveillance, you know, regulation. And in my opinion, it's fairly nearsighted, right? It, 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 first off, there's no law that deals with privacy that won't get passed especially if it can go to voters, because voters will always vote for more privacy, right? Mm -hmm. And so those laws are not necessarily, they don't have to be well-written. They don't have to be well-crafted because they will get passed. And what we yeah. saw in San Francisco when it got passed, um, it was now illegal for um, any public employee to use, use um, unlock their iPhone because it used facial recognition. Um, we saw that it was illegal for the police to do mugshot matching because it used facial recognition. Um, and but but those were kind of the immediate things, and those have been dealt with. Um, but as we look at that slippery slope, as we remove government, you know, we elect a government to kind of take care of us, right? To be that 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 big brother, if you will, that's going to um, you know look out for our best interests, and and we empower them with with certain privileges to do that. Surveillance might be one of those things but it's definitely a slippery slope. But then the question yeah. to me says, okay, if governments can no longer do this and this technology is being democratized to such a point that, that you know, it can be used by anyone, you know, where does that go? And, and my own like kind of thought experiment there is like, all right, what do I morally, intellectually just reject and find repugnant, but yet I would pay for and so where that landed was basically a smart doorbell. I have two young children. They're, they're seven and nine. Um, and I would pay to get a push notification if a uh, convicted child abuser rang my doorbell. Maybe uh -huh. even if they walked by my house, right? Uh -huh. I'd pay a monthly fee for that. I, I want that security. I want to take care of my kids. But I find it repugnant that residents in a society would take on that responsibility. And now, and, and, and so that's the concern that I have is like when we have policy that isn't really well thought out, well crafted, and, and, and really leads us to a more positive future, that we end up with things like that. And that's the last thing that we want is citizens policing themselves. Yeah. I, well, I mean, or residents, I should say. There's so many, there's so many avenues I want to take on all of you, <laughs> what you just said. We could talk for days. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I really appreciate that. I mean, the idea there though is that what's the alternative if you do have this? I don't see how the policy that San Francisco put into play has any effect with you having that uh, that toy or that not a toy. I'm sorry the the facial recognition in your house to be able to realize if someone 
bad is knocking at the door? Um, the San Francisco policy uh, prevents public sector from using, so San Francisco government agencies, right? And, and other, other municipalities that have enacted similar legislation, it, it, it is specific to, to those agencies. It is not, um, you know, infringing upon rights of individuals. But for you, for you, you can still use it, right? Like, so whether or not they pass that right. law that's poorly designed, you could still have it if you wanted. I could. And so, which is, it is very scary to think about because not only that, but the next thing that I was thinking about was that you're now going to be registering everyone that walks by your house. And somebody's got that data and somebody's going to be having that. So... That's another part where, and imagine you're not going to be the only citizen that has that. So now everybody who has the doorbell cameras or security cameras around their house, now they're implementing facial recognition. But is that what I didn't understand exactly about the, rec- the, the law that San Francisco passed is it's not possible for you as a citizen to do that or it is it is still okay like it is still okay the, the law from San Francisco is merely about uh, government agencies okay okay so so then yeah that that is a bit of a scary thought but it is probably already enacted in some of the new technology well so we sort of see this already right um, in in um, I don't want to name and shame anyone so there, there's a smart doorbell manufacturer that has a, a social network around the, the doorbell. And we've already seen, you know, a lot of, of basically, you know, racist community um, um, comments around uh, when, when dark-skinned people walk by the house or, you know, whatever that might be. And, and they're highlighting that as like, oh, this looks suspect. And it's like, oh, no, that's Mike. He lives down the street. You know, what's the problem here? You, you know. Unfortunately, you know that that's not the society that we live in today, and I, you know, I think it's 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 telling that we have these situations and we keep kind of pushing that limit just a little bit more. You know, we we have um, you know neighborhood focused apps where that behavior happens, but it happens in such small um, silos. Um, echo chambers, if you will, that it, it doesn't see, you know, see it more broadly. And I think that's really the concern as, as we're getting into this, this, you know, where, where I can basically self-select my messages that I want to hear. And if I want to hear crazy, I will only see crazy. Yeah. Um, that's the world we're in. Wow. Wow. So, so incredible to think about that. And I really appreciate this thought experiment that you brought up. It's going to be one thing that I'm going to take home with me or <laughs> I am at home right now. So <laughs> I'm going to <laughs> take into the kitchen with me <laughs> and I'm going to do this because that is something that I had never thought about. You know, What is something that I absolutely feel disgusted by and think that is atrocious, but I would pay for Right, and what what would those things be because of my security or because of my own mental well being or um, mental peace of mind? I think, and so yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about that and that thought experiment. So I think we are hitting the time. I have one last question for you. Sure. I would love to know, Stephen, are you a robot? 
<laughs> I had a feeling you'd be asking me that. Um, you know, I, I, there's a fun book to read um, called uh, How to Survive a Robot Uprising, um, written by a, a CMU uh, a roboticist. Um, I'm not a robot, although I look to uh, uh, have more human-machine teaming in my life um, to make my life a little little easier. Nice. I really appreciate this conversation. It has blown open my mind on so many different levels. I really want to say thank you because I could, like you said, we could just continue talking for a few more hours. I want to be respectful of your time though, not keep you here. I, you got boards and Fortune 500 <laughs> companies to go and counsel and make sure that they're doing the right thing. So I'll leave you to doing that. And I just want to say thanks. Yeah, it's my pleasure. This is so much fun. I, I, you know, I, I love talking about this. So wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We may have to do a round two for all these questions that I had laid out that I did not get to. So it, be expecting a call from me in a few months. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> Take care, Stephen. Cheers. You too.